Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The phony bookkeeping goes merrily on. You know, we borrow money from the <laughs> Social Security Trust Fund, and we call it income. Now, a corporation did something like that. The, the management would all be washing each other's laundry in Club Fed. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It's Thursday, October 29th. I'm Tori Stilwell, a U.S. economics reporter in D.C. with Bloomberg News. I am with my colleagues and co-host Dan Moss, our executive editor for international economics here in D.C. with me, and Aki Ito, our editor for Benchmark in San Francisco. Hi, Tori. Hey, guys. Hello. Tori, how's it going? It's going, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty miserable weather here and just waiting for a debt deal to come down. So, (laughs) you know, the usual. Well, this has been another very exciting week in the global economy. Um, Dan, what's caught your eye over the past week? I was looking at the Alibaba earnings uh, released yesterday. The general narrative was that Alibaba hit it out of the park. Sales were up by almost a third despite a slowing Chinese economy, defying the slowdown, overcoming the slowdown. And yes, it's true, China's headline GDP is slowing, but the mix of what's driving Chinese growth has changed dramatically in recent years. Services now accounts for more than half. Consumption, which is what Alibaba is, is doing pretty well, getting stronger, Exports getting weaker, manufacturing getting weaker, fixed assets investment getting weaker. So it's not that Alibaba overcame the slowdown. Alibaba is the Chinese economy. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, that's also a great plug for our second episode on the Chinese financial market crisis for people who haven't uh, taken a listen to that show yet. So check it out. Tori, what's been interesting for you? Yeah, I want to shift from services to goods. We got the advanced trade report this morning, so it would be Wednesday morning. And before your eyes glaze over, I swear it's interesting, (laughs) uh, the U.S. merchandise trade deficit, so for goods, it actually shrank, um, and that was due to higher exports. Shipments of goods to overseas customers climbed 2.4%, which is the biggest increase since March 2014. And this is great news because, you know, we've talked in many episodes about there being a strong dollar and that being bad for manufacturers here because it makes their goods more expensive to foreign customers. Some of that may be starting to abate, which would be excellent news for our economy. Well, you guys, I wanted to talk about the deal that the White House made with Republicans. They reached this deal late Monday night to raise the $18.1 trillion debt ceiling and thus prevent the U.S. government from defaulting on its debt. So, yeah, the government was able to avoid a lot of potential chaos with with this deal. But first, let's introduce our guest, John Steele Gordon, a historian and author of the book Hamilton's Blessing, The Extraordinary Life and Times of Our National Debt. Hello, John. Hello, I'm glad to be here. For people who are listening and are like, I know that the debt ceiling is a big deal, but I don't quite know what it is. 
Tori, can you can you give a quick explainer on what exactly this mysterious term is? Yes, I will do you one better. I will define a couple terms so we have all our ducks in a row. Oh, great. So the debt is just the total of federal budget deficits, you know, throughout history minus federal budget surpluses. That's all of them put together. Now, the deficit is just how much spending exceeds revenues in one given fiscal year. And that's that's sort of easy to imagine as a consumer, how much you're spending versus how much you're getting in. So you can have a surplus and there's still debt. Exactly. For for one year, you can have a surplus and they're still debt. Exactly. Right. Um, now, the debt ceiling is the legal limit on how much total debt the government can issue. And that's not just the amounts borrowed in credit markets, but also in securities, treasuries issued to um, other parts of the government, for example. John, how many countries have a debt ceiling? Is this a unique situation here? It's, it's the only one that I know of, um, and that may be because we have a presidential um, form of government as opposed to a, a parliamentary form of government, where the, where the government and the parliament are essentially one and the same. And so they don't need a debt ceiling. Why do we have it in the first place, and what are the pros and cons of it? Well, the debt ceiling, before 1917, Congress authorized all issue of debt. If the Treasury wanted to issue you know, a billion dollars worth of treasury bonds, the Congress had to say, okay, you can spend it on building bridges or whatever. And then in 1917, they put a limit on the various forms of debt. I mean, how many treasury bills, how many treasury notes, how many treasury bonds um, the treasury could issue. And then in 1939, they established the debt ceiling. And, you know, the total debt cannot exceed this number without congressional permission. This seems like it was just a kind of a control measure, like Congress wanting some measure of control over what the Treasury was doing. Yes, um, that that's the point of it. But, of course, if Congress appropriates money to spend, um, and then it has to provide the, the money to do the spending. And if you don't don't have the you know, tax revenues coming in, then you have no choice but to borrow the money. So it's kind of a, you know, dog chasing its tail kind of a thing. John, was it always this contentious? Uh, no, not usually. It's in the last um, 15, 20 years that it's really gotten heated, and especially under um, Obama. How do you account for that? Well, I, I think partly it's that you know, American politics is polarizing, you know, it used to be, used to have liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans. You don't anymore. All Democrats are liberal, all Republicans are conservative. Yeah. And for our listeners, let's just sort of establish where we are in the in the debt ceiling talks in Washington. Um, the, the Republicans in the White House came to agreement, as Aki said, and so now it's got to pass both the House and the Senate. Um, our congressional reporters say that'll probably happen in the House sometime Wednesday, today, the day we're recording, and um, then it'll have to go to the Senate for approval as well. And they have until November 3rd is our deadline, basically. Uh, it's before the U.S. gets very close to defaulting on its obligations, which would be an extraordinarily bad scenario. <laughs> Let's uh, back up a little bit here. I, when I first learned what the debt ceiling was, I was astonished because every year Congress decides on the budget. You know, it decides on how much it wants to spend and how much approximately it's going to take in in revenue and then decides uh, these are the bonds that we have to issue in order to borrow enough to uh, actually be able to spend that amount of money. So they already decide on all of this. And then later, they also have to go through this thing where they 
authorize the amount that the of, of the total total debt of the government and it just seems like this very weird thing where you already say that you're going to spend this amount and you already decide on it but then you have to go through this separate process of then getting approval to do all of that all yeah. over again it's so confusing to me very bizarre probably has something to do with getting good headlines the next morning you can say you're <laughs> tough on spending <laughs> John, do you think things would be better if we just got rid of this debt ceiling altogether or if we just kind of tried to meld it in together with the budget making process? Uh, yes, I do, because I think it's now become a, a political football um, and it doesn't serve any purpose other than to get politicians to get good headlines the next morning, which is, of course, half of politics. I guess every every year when this issue comes up, it does give us a good chance, though, to reflect on how much the U.S. government owes to uh, everyone else, um, both U.S. citizens and uh, U.S. businesses and companies and individuals around the world. Tori, do you want to give us a quick primer on what this debt looks like now? Yes. So... Debt comes in many different shades, and there's many different labels for the different kinds of debt, so I'll walk through a couple of them. So the U.S. public debt subject to limit, which includes um, even debt that is accumulated when parts of the government borrow or lend um, from or to other parts of the government. So that amount right there is $18.1 trillion right now, and that's right at the limit. That is the debt ceiling right there. That's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> then we have the U.S. public debt held by the public. And this is, uh, this is more often used by economists. This is what people are really concerned about. And this is $13 trillion. Um, to give you some context, before the recession, um, in December 2007, that number was $5.1 trillion. So we've, we've more than doubled that level since then and you know that has to do with revenues decreasing during the recession also you know we spent to try to get the economy going back up again so uh we've definitely seen debt balloon recently let's put these numbers into some kind of perspective because taken in and of themselves they sound stratospheric but how is the u.s doing relative to other major economies is that a lot of debt is it average is it not very much it's uh, well above average. I mean, we currently owe about 103, 104% of GDP. There are countries in worse shape. Greece is 158%. Uh, Japan is about 174%. But Japan, uh, the Japanese are very thrifty people, and they, the Japanese national debt is almost entirely internally held. Uh, UK is around 90%. France is around 86%. These numbers have all been getting steadily worse over the last um, several decades. And it's important to look at these debt-to-GDP ratios instead of just the absolute amount in trillions of dollars because if your economy produces a lot every year and you have some amount of debt, that's totally fine. But if your economy doesn't produce a whole lot, but the debt size is actually a lot, that's when you're kind of in trouble. Let's stay on Japan. And Aki, you may also be able to provide some perspective of this. Shouldn't debt-to-GDP of the magnitude that John just described, if you believe half of what's said about the US debt, shouldn't that be leading to a catastrophe in Japan? Yet Japanese bonds are in more demand than ever. The country's not falling apart. 
Why is it such a big deal? So part of the reason why people aren't panicked about Japan right now is because, like John said, most of the debt is actually owed to its own citizens, its own companies. So when the debt's kind of internal like that, you're just, it's kind of like you're pushing money around within the same country. It's not that big of a deal. Whereas when you have foreign investors, that's when things get a little bit more worrying. That was the case for Greece. That was the case for Spain, etc. during the European sovereign debt crisis. Um, but at the end of the day, this is really about market psychology. You know, investors can really wake up tomorrow and decide that the U.S. or Japan or any of these other countries just aren't uh, trustworthy anymore. And that's when interest rates go up very quickly and you quickly tumble into a financial crisis. I suppose they could. But don't you think comparisons with Greece and Spain are somewhat exaggerated? I mean, here in the U.S., we or you do actually control your own currency. That's not the case in Greece and not the case in Spain. John, what do you think of those comparisons? Well, I think that's perfectly true. I mean, we are the reserve currency, and that is a huge economic advantage for us. Um, And there's no other country that really could provide the reserve currency at this point. So we're very lucky in that regard. So we're, we're okay for now? Well, we can afford the debt right now um, because interest rates are extraordinarily low and have been for several years. But if they go back up to normal rates, suddenly the interest on the debt is going to be eating up an awful lot of tax revenue. How worried should we be about the size of the U.S. debt? I think we should be moderately worried about it. It's not a crisis, but it can quickly become one. And what are we borrowing this money for? In the 19th century, we used the national debt to save the Union. You know, in the 1930s, we used it to save the American economy. In mm-hmm. the 1940s, we used it to save the world. What have we spent this, all this money on? In 1970, the national debt was 39% of GDP. Today, it's over 100%. And we've had no great war, no great depression. We've but we do some, have an aging population. We do have an aging population, but it's not as bad as, say, Japan is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And so what we've basically done is we have borrowed money from our grandchildren so that we can enjoy it today. And you know, don't forget, today's borrowing is necessarily tomorrow's taxes. We're taking this money from our grandchildren so that we can have a nice lifestyle. When I, uh, when I talked to an economist yesterday, John Canale over at LPL Financial, he told me that when he talks to clients um, and investors, the debt is the number one question that people have for him. It is the thing that people are most worried about. Do you think that's why that is? It's just this whole feeling that it's getting unsustainable and it's getting out of hand and it jeopardizes sort of the U.S. as we know it? I'm just kind of curious why they would be so worried about it, why that's the first question. Well, I think one thing is that this could could suddenly become a crisis very, very quickly. It's Again, it's psychology. I mean, in the 1970s, New York City trotted on down to Wall Street and asked to borrow more money. Um, And Wall Street just said, sorry, we're not lending the city of New York any more money. And suddenly it was Ford the city dropped dead. Fortunately, the state of New York bailed out New York City and put it under strict control. One thing they did was require New York City to keep its books according to generally accepted accounting principles. It would certainly help if the federal government had to do that. But they don't. You know, you know those surpluses we had in 1998, 99, 2000, mm-hmm. 2001? The national debt went up every one of those years. Now, how can you be running a surplus and yet your debt is increasing? It was phony bookkeeping is how you do it. And the phony bookkeeping ended in 2001? No, that's when we slipped into uh, deficit again. 
know, the phony bookkeeping goes merrily on. You know, we borrow money from the <laughs> Social Security Trust Fund, and we call it income. Now, a corporation did something like that. The, the management would all be washing each other's laundry in club fed. I'm wondering, you know, this is a conversation with a lot of numbers and a lot of vocabulary that's pretty difficult. Talking about sovereign debt is not my favorite thing in the world because it's so complicated. But if you're a normal person out there, if you're like a normal American citizen, um, why should you care about the debt ceiling and why should you care about the U.S. debt? I think the debt ceiling is, is they don't care about it. Most people don't care about politics. And people who do care about politics find that absolutely incomprehensible. But 90% of the American people don't like politics very much. It's sort of, you know, they deal with it as much as they have to, sort of like nobody likes going to the dentist, but we do anyway. I can personally attest to that. Well, I'm wondering, John, what do you think Alexander Hamilton would have said if there was a time machine that he teleported into modern-day America and saw that the U.S. debt is now around $18 trillion and that the debt ceiling becomes this huge political debating point every year? Well, I mean, Alexander Hamilton said that, you know, that a national debt, if it is not excessive, will be to us a national blessing, and it has many times proved to be exactly that. We could not mm -hmm. have won the Civil War without it. Now, what Hamilton, who, who died in 1804, would say about 2015, I think he'd be probably more interested in things like airplanes and, and television and radio and what have you. Hey, and would, Snapchat? You know, and Snapchat, right. There are a number of prominent economists such as Paul Krugman, though he's not a, the only one, who would say, with interest rates this low, ought we not be borrowing to invest? What would Hamilton have made of that? Well, one thing, about one-third of, of the national debt turns over every couple of years. Um, so it wouldn't be very long before, if interest rates go back up to normal, when the amount of tax revenue needed to, to service the debt would go straight up. And then, you know, either we keep borrowing... Um, and pretending everything's fine, or there has to be drastic tax increases, which would certainly slow the economy, or there's going to have to be big government cuts, which would also slow the economy. So it'd be better to you know, do something about it starting now, but I, yeah. I wouldn't hold my breath. Well, I want to end on a light note. Have you seen Hamilton the Musical yet? I have not. Um, I hear it's very good. Hip-hop is not exactly my uh, kind of music. I'm more a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical type. Um, but everybody who has seen it said it was absolutely great. Yeah, I saw it a few weeks back, back in August, and it's it's amazing. I am going to plug it. I'm going to say that you should watch it. The hip-hop is it's very well done, and uh, it's hilarious to boot. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Sorry. you. And thanks to all of you for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We'll be back next week. You can find us on Bloomberg.com, iTunes, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and many other places. If you're on iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review the show. That really helps other listeners discover us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can reach us and follow us on Twitter at DanielMossDC, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito7. See you next week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.